Welcome to episode 33 of the MMA Rundown Podcast. UFC 245 is the last big pay-per-view event of the year, and obviously that's going to be taking most of the attention for me for this episode. So I'm going to talk about the three different title fights. Uh, so those will be the first three topics. Fourth topic will just be a full card recap of UFC 245. We're going to preview UFC Korea, which is coming up this week, which is going to be headlined by the Korean Zombie versus Frankie Edgar. There's also going to be um, some talk about the commentary. Uh, both Joe Rogan and Daniel Cormier seem to have some trouble uh, out there. We're, we're making some statements that just didn't seem to match what was going on in the fight. So I'll, I'll talk about that and talk about whether or not I think that's a long-term issue or whether that's just something that happened on, on this particular fight night. And the last thing I'll talk about is the IBJJF Nogi Worlds. Unfortunately, given the timing, I'm not going to have all the black belt results in by the time that this is recorded. So right now, I actually have um, the quarterfinals going on right now for black belts. Uh, a couple of semifinals have already happened, so most of the recap is going to be at purple and brown, uh, primarily brown belt. Uh, and then once all the black belt results come in, which I'm sure will be at the end of the night, I'm sure I'll do a, a full recap of that as well. Uh, so back to the start, though. We have Kamaru Usman retaining his title versus Colby Covington. So I'm just going to cover this fight uh, from the start of the fight all the way through the finish. And when this fight, cu- coming into this fight, what I figured is that you're going to know who the winner of the fight is going to be in the first 10 seconds because whoever's going to be able to back the other guy down is probably going to be the one who's implementing their game plan. And to my surprise, for the vast majority of this fight, neither of the guys are really backing each other up against the fence. There were some periods of time where Kamaru had Colby up, up against the fence and Colby would be able to throw a couple of big punches. Usually he would land a big right hand and then pivot off of it uh, from the southpaw stance to get back to center. Colby didn't really have Kamaru pinned up against the fence all too often. Neither of them were uh, attempted any takedowns, so neither of these guys were really trying to play the game that has really worked for them against most of their other opponents. It was primarily a striking match, and t- to that end, Colby was doing pretty well early, but it was a very close fight. So if we're just going to look at the stats in this fight, and this is just the strike counts right now, obviously that doesn't take into account how hard the strikes were, how effective they were, uh, but if you're just looking at numbers round by round, round one... Colby Covington outstruck Kamaru Usman 39-34, to so that's very close. The next round, it was 41-40 to for Colby. Round after that was 29-8 to for Kamaru, and that was Kamaru's best round. During that round is when Kamaru had cracked Colby in the jaw and most likely had broken his jaw. Uh, but even still, what was a little bit surprising to me is that it seemed as though Colby was sort of taking that round off to, to catch his breath and then come back strong in the 4th and 5th. And that was something I had noticed before he had gone back to his corner and said his jaw was broken. One of the interesting things to me about Colby and even Kamaru Part of the reason why they are so successful in, in keeping a strong pace over the course of 25 minutes is because when you're able to take your opponent down, and particularly when you ride the way that they do, neither of them expend a ton of energy once they get on top. They're, they're both pretty efficient from there, so so you can get your active rest in there. But in this fight, neither of these guys were able to take their opponent down and actually get that active rest. And as a result, I think Colby was trying to use the third round as a chance to, to sort of recharge and get ready for the next two rounds. Uh, but in doing so, he got caught with a huge right hand while his mouth was open, and that, that caused some big issues for him that uh, eventually ended up hurting him later on. Now, granted, I don't know that knockout you could really blame on the broken jaw. It looked as though his eyes were rolling into the back of his head, so it wasn't as though it was like a jaw issue or like a pain issue. I think it was just more of he took a huge shot and he was rocked. Um, but obviously, those, it wasn't helpful for him to have a broken jaw going into the fourth and fifth round. Uh, but then for the fourth round, Covington outstruck Kamaru by a count of 36 to 35. So again, razor close. And then in the final round, it was 37 to 19. Although this isn't broken out uh, from prior to the knockdown and then after, so I, I would imagine Colby was slightly ahead before the knockdown, and then Kamaru just poured it on at that point and eventually did enough to get the finish in Mark Goddard's eyes. So 
as far as how this was scored, when I was watching it live, and I, I think one of the biggest things you have to keep in mind is that if you have the commentary on, it may influence how you saw it because the commentary wasn't necessarily... See, see, here's my first concern with the commentary is that in the third round, and during that round, like I mentioned, Kamara was outstriking Colby, but during that round, Daniel Cormier was talking about how Colby needs to change something up. It's not working for him on the feet. Kamara's the better striker, as if this was like a statement of fact when, as I mentioned, Colby had outstruck Kamara in the first two rounds. So, and I mean, even if you don't have those numbers on you, like, it's so close that for anyone to say, oh, well, one of these guys is clearly the better striker than the other, it's just an absurd thing to say. So if you heard that and you believe Cormier, you probably thought that Kamara was doing a little bit better than he otherwise was. And then after Colby had mentioned that he'd broken his jaw, from that point on, the the commentary just kept mentioning broken jaw, broken jaw, broken jaw. So if you know in the back of your head that Colby has a broken jaw, then anytime you see a punch land on his face... It probably feels a little bit more impactful to you. If you're a judge, you probably don't know that Colby had a broken draw because you probably don't have the audio from the corner. So for them, they're just basing it off of what they see. And if you're watching it with that in mind and you're not accounting for the fact that Colby has a broken draw every time he gets hit in the face in the fourth and fifth rounds, I think there's reason to believe that Colby was up 3-1 to one heading into that fifth round. And that's that's where I thought it was. But it wasn't one of those things where it was like so obvious where Colby's definitely up. It was just one of those things like, I think he's up. Uh, and obviously when I'm watching these fights, I'm not watching them as a judge. I'm, I'm watching them for entertainment. And when it's this close, it's one of those things where I can go back, watch, and come away with a different opinion. I've seen some people say that in the second round, even though Colby outstruck him 41-40, to 40, that those body shots were more damaging than what Colby was landing. Uh, that's a reasonable argument to make. I don't know whether or not I would agree with it, because there were some pretty heavy shots that landed to the head of Kamaru as well that seemed to stun him and slow him down. It's not as though the body shots had Colby in a position where he's close to getting finished. It's not as though... Kamaru was on the verge of getting finished on the huge shots he took to his head, but but both of them seemed to stun both guys and kind of knock him back a little bit. Uh, so then we go into the fifth round. Looks like Colby's slightly ahead and um, takes a huge right hand, gets dropped, is able to get back up. Still isn't doing a great great job of being defensive and kind of killing off some time. He, he's trying to chase back after Kamaru, and that's one of the things that I was noticing in this fight is that any time Kamaru would start to gain some momentum, Colby would just come right back at him and just start swinging heavy at him to sort of back him off and really stop his momentum. And that didn't end up working out for him in this case as he gets dropped a second time. Uh, Kamaru chases him down. Colby kind of gets in on a double leg. Kamaru starts landing some shots. And this is more of like a general concern. I don't know that it had a major effect. I think the stoppage itself is not as though Colby was unconscious at the point of the stoppage. Um, but it seems as though it's pretty common for any time someone gets rocked that there will at least be a couple punches that are landed that are illegal, whether it's to the back of the head or elsewhere. And in this case, Kamaru definitely was landing some shots straight to the back of Colby's head that just went unnoticed and unpunished. Um, but eventually, Kamara is able to sprawl out of the double to the point where Colby's got one arm on a single, and then one arm is blocking punches. And at that point, Goddard steps in and stops the fight. Didn't look like those shots were getting through clean. Colby was blocking them. I would have liked to have seen Goddard at least be like, hey, I need you to see you improve position, because he was intelligently... There was definitely intelligent defense from there, because he was obviously blocking the punches. There were punches that were landing on his arm. Uh, then when Kamara made his adjustment, he was getting those, his punches blocked by Colby. So it, it's not as though at that moment Colby needed the ref to step in and save him there. Uh, he still had some time. With there being 50 seconds more, do I think Colby gets to a better position? I, I mean, it's definitely possible. Uh, it's not as though he was like moving and trying to like uh, adjust his single leg or cut an angle on it. He was sort of just like blocking the punches at that, at that specific moment. But it seemed pretty quick from the moment that Kamara went from punching his arm to then having those punches blocked. Um, aiming towards his head where, where Goddard stepped in. So I, I can definitely see an issue with it. I wasn't terribly happy with the stoppage. 
Now, granted, given how this fight was scored, it was scored three to one Colby, three to one Usman, and two to two. So just based off of what the re- or what the judges had going into that point, the ref who, or the judge who had a three to one Colby would have had a three to two Colby. The judge who had a three to one Usman would have had had it four to one Usman, and the judge who had a two to two would have had a three to two Usman. So we would have had a split decision win for Kamara Usman, even if Colby is allowed to continue there. And if Colby is allowed to continue there, I mean, it's very unlikely that he's able to, like, knock Usman out or finish him at that point uh, or even do enough to steal the round. So I think even though the stoppage is questionable, it was one of those fights where I don't think fans are going to be like, well, Usman stopped him. I don't want to see a rematch. No, I think the desire for a rematch is still there, whether this fight goes to a split decision that Usman wins or whether it gets stopped in this manner. So to that end, it's maybe not the most tragic thing, but... That, that's just how it ended up going. Now, a- after the fight, Colby was quick to get out of the octagon. Uh, it, it seems as though in his um, Instagram and Twitter posts afterwards, he's very upset with Mark Goddard. So I, I guess the emotional standpoint was there for him. Uh, also, if he thinks he has a broken jaw, he just wants to get out of there and move along. So for him, wasn't the best night for him, even though he looked better against Kamaru Usman than anyone we've seen fight Usman in, in the UFC. Again, Kamaru, I, I, I guess Worley Alvarez since he finished uh, Colby in one round, had a had a good look against Colby Covington, but over a sustained period of time, Kamara looked about as good against Colby as anyone else. And so we'll see who, who fights Kamara next and, and where the division goes from here. For Colby, he's obviously going to have to take some time off and get that jaw taken care of. A concern for him, and I guess given how he fought in the, the final two rounds, it may be less of a concern with him than others. Uh, but anytime a fighter has a broken jaw, you, you definitely see them come back and be a little bit more worried about getting hit. And that, and that can definitely affect him in a negative way. Yes, it's good to not want to get hit, but at the same point, if you're afraid to put yourself in danger, sometimes you're afraid to put yourself in positions where you can score yourself. So for him, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how he comes back from this, but given that he knew he had a broken jaw and just went after Usman for nine whole minutes afterwards, I think it, there's reason to believe that Colby will be able to handle it and he'll be fine moving forward. But he's definitely going to need some time off, and we'll see where he goes from here. Uh, but then Kamaru, in the post-fight, was talking about how he, he promised he was going to beat up Colby for 24 minutes and finish him in the 25th. He wasn't doing that. I mean, that's that's what he's, that, that's his line after the fight, but if we're talking about what actually happened, that's that's definitely not what actually happened there because Colby was up 3-1 on one of the judges' scorecards. It was 2-2 two two on the other, so it's not as though this was a one-sided beating from Kamaru. It was a very competitive fight. Uh, Kamaru did get the finish at the end. You, you could argue that it was a controversial finish, but... He dropped Colby twice, so there, there was at least something legitimate there. If Colby didn't want to have Mark Goddard take the fight into his hands, and obviously not getting caught with those two right hands would, would go a long way. But to me, it, it still feels like even though this was a big opportunity for Kamara to, to beat a guy who a lot of fans didn't like, I, I still feel like a lot of fans aren't like, yay, I'm high on Kamara, so much as they're like, yay, I'm happy that Colby didn't do well. So if Kamaru gets a fight against Hori Masvidal next, then, I mean, good for him. It's probably going to sell a lot of pay-per-views just because of Masvidal, but I still don't feel like Kamaru is that big of a star quite yet. I feel like there's some... I feel like he's just having some trouble catching out with some fans. The fans aren't really finding him to be the most um, the most honest guy out there. And, and I can see that. It's sort of like John Jones, where Jones... People had a feeling that he, he wasn't the church boy that he portrayed himself to be. And I think with Usman, he, he's sort of portraying himself to be a little bit more humble than people think he really is. Uh, there was an interview during fight week where I think it was Aaron Bronstetter was asking him about Ben Askren retiring and a- after having a rough run in the UFC. And, like, immediately when he asked that question, Kamara's Usman, like, Kamara's face just started smirking as though what he was really thinking was, 
yeah, well, Ben, you were talking a lot of shit, see how it went for you. But then Kamaru's actual answer and what he said was, well, you know, Ben, he's a legend from wrestling, and I heard that he has a bad hip injury, so I just wish nothing but the best for him. So it's one of those things where it's like, people don't feel like they're getting the real Kamaru, and I think for that reason, it's definitely going to slow him down. He had a great opportunity here. He didn't really do a whole lot to promote this fight and really build his name up, and even though he gets the win, and he gets the win in a, in a good fashion, I, I have a feeling he doesn't. he's not going to have the stardom out of this that he could have had. And in that way, it's a wasted opportunity for him. Uh, one more thing to, to mention on that, and this was a tweet I saw from Luke Thomas, who is always just saying stupid shit all the time. Um, but he had a tweet where he was like, I find it odd that the the crowd in Las Vegas was chanting USA uh, in a fight between two American citizens. Look, here's the thing. With Kamaru Usman, is Kamaru Usman an American citizen? Obviously, yes. He's from Texas. Or he, lived, he grew up in Texas, uh, went to school in Nebraska. Uh, but with that being said... If you're going to call yourself the Nigerian Nightmare, if you're going to walk out with a Nigerian flag, if the fans are going to start cheering for the guy who walks out with the American flag and saying USA in in Nevada, in the USA, it's not as though this is like some sort of like racist issue where like people are like don't acknowledge that Kamaro is American. If Kamaro is is hiding behind the Nigerian flag, or if he's like holding up the Nigerian flag, if that's the flag that he wants to represent, then if the American fans want to see the guy who represents the American flag win. That's perfectly fine. This isn't a matter of racism or anything. It's just that's the situation you had going into this fight. Uh, so for the featherweight title fight, we had Max Holloway falling to Alexander Volkanovsky. This is a fight where when I was watching it live, I, I thought Volkanovsky probably had at least four rounds. If we look at the stats, again, this is one of those ones where it's very close in, in the numbers. Uh, round one, it was 27 to 19 for Volkanovsky. Round two is 28-22 Volkanovsky. Round three, 35-22 Volkanovsky. Uh, but then round four, 37 to 36 for Holloway, and then 34 to 31 for Holloway. So typically, like I like I mentioned with Holloway, he, he tends to start pretty slow, get get his reads, and then start to heat up after that. I don't know that it, I would entirely say that's the case here, um, but he was getting to a point later in the fight where Volkanovski was, was getting a little bit more predictable. And, and what that was is anytime Holloway would come in, Volkanovski would then come back and usually throw two hooks. Um, so throw a lead hook and rear hook or a rear hook and lead hook. And Holly was starting to get a read on that, but the problem that Holly was having there is that the read is that, okay, well, if you know Volkanovski is going to come back with those hooks and just throw something straight down the pipe and catch him coming in, because uh, Volkanovski, not only was he throwing those hooks, but he was moving in too, so if you can catch him with something straight down the pipe as he's coming in, you can definitely stun him, rock him, or, or hurt him pretty bad. Uh, but Volkanovski was finding a, a way to land those hooks anyway, so it's one of those things where it's kind of like, you, you know the opening's there, but there's also the risk of you getting clipped or, or you missing. Uh, so Holly was having some trouble making that read work for him. Uh, so even though the, the opportunity was there, he was having some trouble scoring with it. Early on, Volkanovski was doing a good, good job of outlanding him. He was also doing an excellent job of the leg kicks early on, uh, which is going to bring up another point that I'm going to bring up uh, when I talk about Jose Aldo uh, later on in the card. But I think that was interesting in that in, in the Aldo fights with Holloway, you really didn't see a whole lot of leg kicks, which is something Aldo used to be known for. Uh, and then in this fight, Volkanovski was obviously finding a home for the light kick, so the opening was there. And some people were saying that it was forcing Hallway to change stances. Hallway typically changes stances anyways. I, I don't know that his legs were battered that bad where he had to change stances. I, I'm sure that that played a factor in him doing it, but it's not as though he like couldn't walk on one of the legs and like was forced into fighting in a stance that he doesn't normally fight in. He, he's good from both southpaw and orthodox. Uh, so I think some people were... We're overhyping that effect, but even still, the leg kicks definitely were there, and they they were effective for Alex Volkanovski. Uh, but in the end, he wins this fight on 
by score, I believe it was 49-46 and then two 48-47s. If you're looking at the numbers and the 48-47s make sense, I guess. When you're watching it live, you might not have thought so. Uh, part of it was that Volkanovski strikes seem to be doing a little, seem to be heavier than those of Aldo or of uh, Holloway. So even if the numbers are close, um, sometimes the the force put into the strikes from Volkanovski you would figure would, would count a little bit more than those from Holloway. Uh, but in the end, Volkanovski gets gets the win. He gets the title, and for him, it, it's going to be huge because afterwards Dana White was talked to about this. Dana White said that. He wants to have a rematch between Holloway and Volkanovski, and he wants it to be in Australia, which is going to be a gigantic opportunity for Volkanovski, especially if he's able to win. Uh, what's going to interest me about that is, like I said with Max Holloway, he's very good about reading his opponents as, as the over the course of a fight, making adjustments and then improving from there. In this particular fight, if you're looking at the numbers, um, yes, it was a rough th- third round for him, but fourth and fifth, Holloway had more strikes landed than Volkanovski did. So if he made some good reads in those fourth and fifth rounds, and he's going to be able to carry over into, the, into a rematch, especially if it's an immediate rematch where there's less time for Volkanovski to make major adjustments, you'd wonder how that next fight would go, whether Holloway's going to be able to kind of build off of that momentum and ha- have a stronger start, not put himself in a 3-0 hole and actually find a way to win the next fight, uh, or, or whether Volkanovski's going to make some more adjustments beyond that and force Holloway to make some, some new reads and still find a way to, to outpoint him and, and, and end up winning the entire fight. Uh, but if that is the fight that's next, that's that's definitely going to be an interesting fight to see. I think because of the fact that Holloway came on strong at the end and at least won the last two rounds, it, it definitely makes for an interesting storyline there. It's not as though it's like, oh, well, this is a guy who just beat Holloway clean. Why would I expect anything different the next time around? I think there is reason to believe that this fight could be competitive the next time around and that Holloway could get his title back the next time around. If he does, it, it sort of puts the division in a weird spot because I don't know that you want to go right back away and make the trilogy and all of a sudden you have Holloway versus Volkanovski 3. Meanwhile, you have... Uh, Yeo Rodriguez, Magomed Sharipov, and a few other guys who are working their way to a title fight that are just kind of sitting around waiting in purgatory as these guys keep fighting each other. But if that's the fight they want to make, I, I could see the argument for it. And Holloway's been a good champion, so it, it really wouldn't upset me that much if he ends up getting the next title shot and they end up running it back in Australia. And I'm sure the UFC ha- would be happy to do that just because of the business that the last Australian card did with Adesanya and Whitaker. And plus, you could probably put Whitaker and or Adesanya on that card as well. And I don't know whether you're, you're selling out 57000 again, but it wouldn't surprise me if they went for it. So really good for the UFC business. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if, they, if these guys do rematch, how it ends up working out as well. Next title fight to talk about is Amanda Nunes versus Jermaine Duranamy. And this fight, man, it, it, it definitely dispelled a, a few talking points that were getting thrown around on fight week. Uh, one of those talking points was how Jermaine Duranamy had massively improved her wrestling over the course of that first fight and then this fight, I, I think just as a general thing, and this is one of my biggest pet peeves in MMA, is that oftentimes when fighters get to the UFC level, they go from constantly training to improve to sort of just training in fight camps and taking off time when they don't have fights scheduled. And as a result, they're really not improving at, at a rate that you would expect them to. If you think about how long GDR has been, both in the UFC but then also just in MMA in general, if you would assume that she had like trained wrestling like once or twice a week, consistently over that period of time like what that would have done for her in that fight last night would have been huge and it might have been enough for her to actually win this fight and become the champion and and, and not only be the, a former champion of 45 but then also be a, a current champion at 35 um beating the 45 champion possibly put her in a position where she could eventually become a double champion uh in the next fight because had she won that probably would have been the fight they would have made next but instead it, it seemed as though every time that Amanda shot in her, and it's not as though Amanda's wrestling looked fantastic. It's not like her shots were super clean. It's not as though the, the finishes 
um, looked like they were coming from like a D1 All-American. Um, but Nunes, or, but uh, Duranami, especially in open space when she didn't have the fence to, to help her out, she was just struggling to, to keep Nunes off of her. Uh, but in the second round, she looked really good, was able to to land a lot of good shots on the feed, had Nunes in trouble, looked as though Nunes was stunned at some points, but when she wasn't able to defend the takedown, that caused some huge problems for her. And one of the biggest issues there is that Nunes was leaving a gigantic hole with her left hand where it, she was just kind of leaving a, a big open space for straight right, wasn't doing anything really to make an adjustment there. And as a result, she was getting caught a couple times there. But the problem is that every time that Duranami would, would make that read and start throwing the straight right, Nunes would kind of dive underneath that straight right, get in on a shot, and then be able to take her down there. And with no really solid takedown defense from Duranami, once Nunes would slip underneath that right hand, then the round would pretty much spend at least two or three minutes, if not more, on the ground. And that just isn't any good for her. She's not going to... like. She, she's just not going to be able to do much from there. Yeah, she had a couple of times where there were like some sloppy triangles that she threw up, but had Duranami been able to defend the takedown better there, this fight could have been much different, but as a result, even though she had a great second round, just was constantly getting put on her back. Um, both girls, uh, especially after the first couple of rounds where Duranami was throwing some up kicks that Nunes didn't like, but both girls started just stalling. Uh, Duranami would just kind of hang on to her from guard and wait for the ref to stand him up. Nunez would keep her head like about six inches above Duranami's head, never really posture up. Uh, so she wouldn't be posturing up to a point where she could throw any heavy ground and pound um, for large portions of this fight, especially later on. Uh, she wasn't really attempting to pass. And as a result, we kind of got a bit of a boring fight, especially later on in this, later on in the rounds. Uh, so for Nunez, uh, the, there was some talk prior to this fight where... I you, you can definitely make the argument that Nunez is the greatest female fighter of all time, given who she's beaten. Um, but... They were starting to be the stupid talk, and this was something that Ariel Hawani was responsible for as well, um, where it's like, well, some people say you're, you're the greatest woman of all time. Why not the greatest fighter of all time? And th- this kind of goes back to like an, an old thing that I've talked about before, where, like I mentioned in the pound-for-pound pound rankings, where it's like, yes, I understand how, how great it is what Amanda Nunes has done, but Amanda Nunes is a 135-pound fighter. If you're going to talk about Amanda Nunes and rank her just in, in general, including men, uh, which is the pound-for-pound pound ranking, the pound-for-pound pound pound ranking includes men, then what you're saying is that you would be ranking her ahead of other men who are 135 pounds. And if you look at someone else who fought on the card, like Piotr Jan, uh, imagine a fight between Piotr Jan and Amanda Nunes. Like, it would be a bloodbath, and Jan would just absolutely murder her. Uh, so if you're going to talk about Amanda Nunes being the greatest general fighter of all time, not just woman fighter, but fighter uh, across genders... There would sort of be an implication that Nunes would be better than Piotr Jan. Nunes would be better than Henry Cejudo. Nunes would be better than T.J. Dillashaw, better than Cody Garbrandt. Like, th- let's be real here. That's that's not where she's at. Uh, we, we saw a lot of holes in her game here. She's in a division that isn't necessarily filled or filled with people who are, are going to make her pay for those holes. Durante was starting to show off some of those holes in the striking, but didn't have competent grappling to to force the fight to stay on the feet. And as a result, Nunes ends up getting away with the win here and. Given who's left in the division, she's probably getting Irene Aldana next, but I, I don't know that Aldana is a, a more difficult fight for her than Duranami. I, I think if she can get by Duranami, she can probably get by Aldana too, but lucky for her there, but hopefully this this tempers the talk of Nunes being the greatest general fighter of all time, and though it seems as though no one ever seems to learn at the UFC level, maybe this can be an example where people can learn um, that if you're not taking time during your career to constantly improve your skills that it's going to catch up to you and it's going to catch up to you in a time where it's very inconvenient and in this case 
the time that Jermaine Durant was not spending working on her wrestling, not spent improving her wrestling, not spent improving her grappling. Man, it would have helped if all those years were being spent even going like once or twice a week to the gym, if not like three or four times. I mean, if you're just thinking about like an accountant who does jujitsu, oftentimes like the person who was working 40 hours a week and doing jujitsu for fun, like they're improving at a quicker rate than some of these UFC fighters because these UFC fighters are only fighting in camps. And when you're in a camp, it's less focused on improvement and more about refinement. And it's just unfortunate for GDR, but that was her decision. That's her decision on how she wanted to approach the training in her career, and it, it caught up to her because she she could be a champion right now. She could be the UFC bantamweight champion right now, um, but during all, all that time in her career that she wasn't, she was doing other things other than working on her wrestling, other than working on her jujitsu. It, it's caught up to her. Uh, so as for the rest of the card for UFC 245, uh, the fight prior to the first title fight, we had Jose Aldo versus Marlon Moraes. Marais came out very strong, as he often does in the first round. Uh, landed a, a big head kick early on that clipped the, the top of Aldo's head. Aldo was a little bit stunned, uh, though he wasn't out. Um, but then Aldo was able to survive that. Did a really good job of keeping his hands up here. There were a lot of really quick and heavy shots that Marais was was throwing to the head that Aldo wasn't able to get out of the way of, but he was able to get his hand up and, and block them. Uh, so obviously being able to keep his hands up there was a huge factor for him. Uh, if you go to the first fight on the card with Oscar Pijota, who was doing the exact opposite, we saw what happened to him. Uh, but Aldo uh, was defensively sound here and was able to, to stay around after the first round. And then from there, he, he just started walking down Marais, uh, showed a better gas tank than Marais did uh, for most of this fight. Marais w- was doing a decent job of landing. Aldo was having some difficulty in, in terms of finding his openings and landing, but it, it still seemed as though Aldo had done enough to one, win the, the final two rounds. Uh, so it was a bit of a surprise when this went to split decision and Mar- Marlon Marais got the win. Um, but afterwards, Dana White was talking about how he felt as though Aldo won this, that Henry Cejudo thought Aldo won this. Dana White's talking about Aldo fighting Cejudo next for the title, which I don't know that that makes a whole ton of sense. I, we've had people lose fights and then fight for a title afterwards. Uh, we've had people lose fights where it was clear they'd lost that their previous fight and fight for a title afterwards. So at least in this case where you have a, a controversial loss, I, I guess you could still make the argument. Um, but I, I just don't see Aldo being the guy that you want to put in uh, in the next title fight, especially when you consider the fight that happened before this. But before I move on from there, the obvious thing to talk about would be Jose Aldo's weight cut and some of the reactions around it. So Aldo looked decent after he had a chance to rehydrate, and after when, actually when he was in the octagon, he looked pretty good in the octagon. My concern for Aldo, though, is that it's pretty clear that the, the lifestyle he has to maintain in order to make this weight is not a very good one. It's not a very healthy one. And so for him, it, uh, you just wonder what, what the expectations are. If the idea is that he's going to be a Bantamweight champion, then you're probably assuming that he's going to be a Bantamweight for a while. And for him to be in a position, at least with, within striking distance, where he can continually make Bantamweight, that means that what we saw in these training camp pictures is, is pretty much what you would have to see from, from him uh, over the course of a few years, really, if he's going to be in the division for that long. He, he's still, I believe, 31 or 33 He's still pretty young. If he wants to fight for a few more years, if he's going to be doing all that at Bantamweight, his lifestyle outside of the cage over the course of those years is going to suck. And quite honestly, I I just don't want to see that out of him. I don't think that's good for him. I don't think it's necessary. He's still technically a contender at Featherweight. He's still a top-five guy in Featherweight. Now, granted, he he lost to the guy who just won the belt. He lost twice to the guy who just lost the belt. Uh, So the odds of him winning a title there maybe aren't all that high. Um, But even still, I don't know that his odds of winning a title at at Bantamweight are the highest either, and just the, the quality of life that he's going to have to be going through, if he's going to have to keep making this weight, I just don't think it's worth it. So, yes, for this one fight, 
you say, wow, he looked pretty big out there. He, he's, he had the speed to keep up with Marais. Uh, he, he had the stamina. He was able to take some big shots. Uh, but for me, making weight isn't just about... It's not just about how you're going to look the day after you weigh in. It, a lot of it's about the lifestyle you're going to live uh, to make sure you can make weight the day before. And to me, I have a lot of concerns about Jose Aldo just having to live the lifestyle that would need to be lived for him to continually make this weight. And even still, if that's gonna, if that's something he's going to do, like how often can he reasonably fight? Like how, how many times a year is he going to be able to do this and make that weight? To me, I, I just don't think it's worth it. Yes, he he arguably could have just beaten the number one guy in the division, but I I don't know that I see, I see it being worthwhile for him. Even if he's able to, to pull off a title fight, or even if he's able to get, the, get a title fight, and even if he wins that title fight, uh, which I don't know that I see happening. I'm I'm just concerned that it just isn't a smart thing for him to do long term. It, it might have worked out okay for him on this one occasion here as a one-off, but man, if that's something you're gonna you're gonna commit yourself to over the course of years, I I just don't like it at all for Aldo. Uh, so then speaking of the 135 pound division, the fight before that we had Uriah Faber versus Pierre Jan. Uh, actually, you know what? Before I get to that, uh, one more thing on Aldo. So as I mentioned with the Volkanovski and Holloway fight, Holloway or Volkanovski was able to find a lot of success for the leg kicks, uh, where Aldo hadn't in the past. And to me, that's one of the things I've noticed about Aldo for a while, and I've mentioned this before in past podcasts and in past uh, videos, is that Jose Aldo, it, it seems as though over the course of his career, when, when you throw leg kicks as heavy as he does, just in general, if you're just throwing a, a regular leg kick and it lands on a knee, if it lands on an elbow, if you're throwing to a body or to the head, um, if your foot lands in the wrong spot, you can damage your leg pretty bad throwing a leg kick. Like it's not all, uh, it's not all one way straight when you're throwing a kick. Oftentimes you're gonna get hurt pretty bad as well. Not just the guy who you're kicking. And it seems as though with Aldo throwing as hard as he did, as long as he did, he's probably gotten his leg banged up pretty badly. And as a result, I don't know whether or not he has like any permanent injury to it to the point where now he just doesn't want to throw leg kicks all that often. And as a result, or whether it's just one of those things where if you get injured X amount of times, you just you're hesitant to to throw anymore and and have an, have another injury happen, but the amount of leg kicks we've seen out of Jose Aldo in the past few years just hasn't been very very much. Nothing compared to what we've been used to seeing from him, especially in the WEC days. Uh, if you think back to him fighting Uriah Faber and what he had done to Uriah Faber, uh, so f- to me, the Aldo we've gotten recently has been more of like a block a boxing centric Aldo. He, he hasn't really shown enough offensive wrestling to be able to take guys to the ground and utilize his jiu-jitsu, which is excellent, especially his top game. He's excellent guard passing, um, but we really haven't seen that at the highest level of MMA, which is who he's been fighting against. Uh, he's pretty much taken most of the kicks out of his game, uh, so we're just getting a boxer there, and that's part of the reason why Holloway was able to be so successful against him is that Holloway is a better pure boxer than Aldo is. Uh, so Holloway was able to beat him in the boxing without Aldo being able to utilize the leg kicks as effectively as he had in the past. He wasn't able to slow Max down or even like do enough to majorly alter the course of a fight with leg kicks. Uh, we didn't really see him use the leg kicks too much in this Marais fight. And so for me, the, the Aldo we have right now just isn't the same Aldo that we had in the past. It, it sort of it is worth bringing into question uh, in, in terms of like the featherweight uh, all-time rankings and then also if you're looking at like a pound-for-pound pound all-time ranking. Because to me, one of the interesting things about Aldo is his game was known for having brutal leg kicks, pretty good boxing, um, but being extremely difficult to take down. And for that reason, part of me has to wonder how a prime Aldo would, would do against a prime Nurmagomedov. You would figure that if Aldo's able to fight off the takedowns against Khabib like he has against most other guys, if he's able to sort of break away and um, fight off locked hands, um, or fight off the referee's position, or at least like a, a form of the referee's position, 
um, in the way that he had against past opponents, how he'd be able to do um, getting back up to his feet against Khabib, Khabib were able to take him down. You'd figure Aldo would have a major advantage on the feet. Like, like just trying to imagine a, a prime Aldo who actually was able to throw leg kicks against a prime Khabib is really an interesting um, thought experiment in terms of thinking about who the best fighters of all time were. Uh, but then also this argument of who the best featherweight of all time is, and I know Joe Rogan in the Octagon was telling Max, you are without a doubt, unquestionably, the greatest featherweight of all time. Um, you, you know, part of me has to wonder if the Aldo that used to throw leg kicks more commonly had been the one that fought against Max Holloway, would those fights have ended differently? And, you, you know, you never know, but it, it's definitely one of those things that I, I definitely have to think about. And every time Aldo fights, you know, part of you wants to see just the old Aldo come back and see those old see those leg kicks come back, but there's something there where he just doesn't feel comfortable doing it, and it's a little bit unfortunate in that way. Uh, but now back to the Piotr Jan versus Uri Faber fight. Uh, Jan was a major favorite in this fight, as he should be. Uh, like I had mentioned last week on the podcast, this just was a terrible matchup for Faber in that Jan's a guy who's wrestling. He's extremely difficult to take down, extremely difficult to hold down. Uh, and then on the feet, is an excellent boxer and would be better than Faber there, and that's exactly what happened. Faber had great difficulty trying to take down and hold down Piotr Jan, so we had mostly a boxing match. Uh, Faber was able to to cause some issues for Jan with that, with his overhand right. That's a punch that he's very good at. Uh, but Jan made his adjustments, um, was able to find some big strikes in the clinch, uh, and then started dropping Faber in the second round. Uh, third round comes around, and then while they're in a clinch, uh, after they break, Jan throws a head kick that knocks Faber down again. And at, at that point, the, the repetitive enough steps in, and Piotr Jan gets the win here. I, I think at this point, it's, it's pretty safe to say that Jan is the guy who deserves the title fight at the weight. Uh, pretty unfortunate for Aljamain Sterling in that before this fight had happened, Sterling was the guy who a lot of people were waiting to see fight for the title, uh, coming off of his win against Pedro Munoz. But to me, Jan looks like the toughest matchup out there for Cejudo. I think Jan actually beats Cejudo. Uh, again, people think of Cejudo as this Olympic gold medal wrestler, but oftentimes people conflate freestyle wrestling and folk style wrestling. Now, granted, Cejudo did do some folk style wrestling in high school, but most of his, his success, especially internationally, was in freestyle. And the main difference there is that in folk style, when you take a guy down, uh, they, they put a clock on, and you actually have to be able to ride him out and keep him on the ground, whereas freestyle, they'll give you a short amount of time where they'll, they'll see if you can turn a guy a couple times, but control on the ground is much less important in freestyle than it is in folk style. And though Cejudo will likely be able to take Jan down at times, uh, I could see Jan being able to get back to his feet pretty quickly. And it, it, this fight takes place on the feet for the most part. Though Cejudo is a pretty good boxer in his own right, and though he's got decent kicks, I just see Jan having the advantage on the feet. So for that reason, I actually think Jan is a pretty bad matchup for Cejudo. And if, if that's the fight that's next, I could definitely see him taking the title. So on to the prelims. We have Jeff Neal versus Mike Perry. Neal uh, quickly was able to land a, a huge left high kick uh, that stunned Mike Perry, backed him up against the fence, uh, landed uh, another head kick, and then landed a couple more punches, was able to drop Perry. Perry was sort of like crumbled into a ball. Um, just defending himself, and at that point, the ref stepped in, good stoppage. Uh, so for Perry, tough loss. It was sort of odd to see him come back so soon after having his nose absolutely mangled by Vicente Luque. Uh, but he's one of those guys who's so exciting to watch and so popular among fans that win, lose, draw, bad loss, doesn't matter. People are going to want to see him back. So for him, he'll just need some time to recover and be ready to go again. But I, I don't know this really does a whole lot of damage to his career. It's not as though people have been looking at Mike Perry as though he's a, a, a future title contender. He's just one of those fun fighters who people want to see fight. Uh, as for Jeff Neal, he's definitely made himself a, a very interesting contender at welterweight. He was number 14 heading into this fight. Uh, he's talking about fighting Ponzinibbio next. I don't know why Ponzinibbio has been out for so long. I know there have been some injuries. I don't know what time he's looking at coming back. Uh, when he does come back, Neal would probably not be a great matchup for him because there's probably going to be some, some octagon rust. He's probably going to need a little bit of time to, to settle into his next fight. 
And having to go against a guy like Jeff Neal might not be the most fun thing for him, but if that's the fight they make, uh, that's definitely a winnable fight for Jeff Neal. Uh, For Neal, the striking is excellent. There's a ton of power there. Uh, Looks like he can cause a lot of problems for a lot of the top guys in the division on the feet. The question for him is going to be how is he going to deal with some of the elite wrestlers? Because at welterweight, that's that's what you have at the top. You have Kamaru Usman, you have Colby Covington, you have Tyron Woodley. Uh, So if you're going to break through it, at some point you're going to have to deal with a a guy who's got some high-level wrestling credentials that likes to use it in a fight. And so for him, there seems to be a bit of a question mark with the grappling, which isn't to say that I've, I've seen bad grappling out of him so much as it is to say that I haven't seen grappling out of him in general. And that's just something I'd like to see. And he, he was saying that he wants a couple more fights before he's ready to fight for a title. So whether he's thinking about making improvements in the striking um, more so, or if it's more so in the grappling, uh, whatever the case may be, he, he wants to take his time a little bit before he goes to, a, before he works his way into a title fight. But if he can be a guy who can defend takedowns well and be able to land like that on the feet, he's going to be an issue for a lot of the top guys because as good as Usman is on the feet, as as high volume as Covington can be on the feet, um, you look at Tyron Woodley, he's a guy who oftentimes gets backed up against the fence. Uh, if these guys have trouble taking down a guy like Jeff Neal, they're, they're going to be in for a long fight against him. So for Jeff Neal, uh, if he and his coach feel like he needs to take a little bit more time and improve in the grappling before they, they take on some of those guys, uh, that's fine, that makes sense. Uh, but he's definitely a guy who can be who can be an issue at the top of this division for a while, and he'll be, definitely be a guy to watch in 2020. As someone where if he doesn't earn a title fight by the end of next year, he could be a guy who is in the top of the rankings and is right in line for it. Uh, the fight before that, we had Ketlin Vieira, who was returning after, I believe, a year and a half or two years, fighting against Irene Aldana. Um, wasn't a super technical fight, but uh, eventually Aldana is able to land a huge lead hook. Uh, that knocks out Ketlin Vieira and then lands another huge shot on the ground to, to put her out for Vieira. Had she won here, this most likely most likely would have given her a title fight, given that she's never fought against Amanda Nunes, and that's a fight that people would want to see as a result, especially with Nunes knocking out pretty much or knocking off pretty much everyone else. Uh, Aldana, by getting the win here, pretty much jumps the queue, and it sounds like she's probably going to be the next one in line for a title fight now, especially with Duran and me taking the loss here. Uh, so really big win for Aldana. Uh, for Vieira, just made a really bad read there where she was trying to parry a jab um, when it didn't even look like a jab was coming, and instead the hook comes around the parry and puts her on her butt, and then she gets finished on the ground. Fight before that, we had Amariak Madoff versus Ian Heinish. This goes to a unanimous decision, 29-28 in all three judges' scorecards for Akhmedov. Uh Some decent wrestling exchanges here, although neither guy was able to control each other on the ground for an extended period of time. Uh, but Akhmedov was able to land the more significant shots on the feet, so he's able to get the win here. Then we had Matt Brown versus Ben Saunders. This fight ends with five seconds left in the second round by a TKO. Uh, after Brown gets Sanders er, got Sanders, Saunders down, uh, was able to land a, a bunch of heavy shots from the top um, from guard and ends up getting the finish there. Now Saunders had a, a really good opportunity in the first where he had a triangle that he was trying to finish up. Brown did a really good job of not letting his arm that was in get pulled across. Uh, so Saunders was trying to find ways to... Um, to, to actually get it pulled across or, or make some adjustments off of it, but there never really was an angle for an Omoplata, not that I think he would have wanted to go for an Omoplata. Um, never really had an armbar there, was starting to get pushed up against the fence at times where his angles were limited. So for for Ben Sonner, it's pretty frustrating in that he had three three minutes where he was in a very dominant, a really strong position, wasn't able to get the finish, and as a result, kind of comes in with tired legs into the second round, and round does not go well for him at all, ends up losing the round, and ends up getting finished at the end of the round. Uh, prior to that, we had the early prelims. So you have Chase Hooper versus Daniel Tamer. Chase Hooper is a kid who's getting hyped up a lot by the UFC, so much so that this prelim fight was then replayed on ESPN2 with the regular prelims when they had a little bit of time. Uh, so Chase Hooper, 
I, I hadn't seen him fight before this. I, I'd heard his name. I, I had seen, like, the UFC talking about, like, oh, here's his teenage dream. He's coming from the Contender Series. And to me, one of the things with the UFC is that they push people along very quickly. Once you're in the UFC, it's hard for them to just kind of hang on you and let you develop over time. So while I, I saw some good things out of him, my concern with the UFC is that typically if you're a young fighter in the UFC and you're doing well, they're just going to push you up the ladder really quickly. So if you don't have the skill set where you can handle that, you're going to get kind of pushed down and you're going to stumble down pretty quickly. And to me, though what I liked what I saw to Chase Hooper in this fight, and Daniel Tamer's not an easy guy to beat, there are definitely some concerns with me where if the UFC is going to try to push him along and push him in a direction where he's going to be a champion by 22, which is in two years from now, he's going to be fighting some really high-level guys and it's going to cause some issues for him. Also, he's 6'1 at featherweight. When you listen to him talk, it sounds as though, to put it nicely, he has some more um, he has some more development to do, I guess you could say. And, and, and what I'm implying with that is that chances are he's not going to be a 45 uh, over the course of his career. He's probably going to be forced to move up and wait just as his body continues to develop. Uh, so he's going to be fighting bigger guys over the course of time. And if you, if you just look at his skill set, his striking, from what we saw, I mean, Tamer is an, an excellent striker, but it, it, it was at a level, it wasn't at a level as though he was like keeping pace with Tamer or where, like where Tamer was having to like slowly break him down over time. Like Tamer was landing some heavy shots right away. Uh, the wrestling, he was long and it, it, he was, it seemed as though once he was able to kind of like reach around the guy and or like capture an ankle, he was pretty good about finishing off a takedown from there. But it's not as though his wrestling looked like that of a, a high level college wrestler or anything like that. Uh, his jujitsu was effective where it was needed, but it, it's one of those things where. If he has to fight against a high-level jiu-jitsu guy, is his striking going to be at a level where he's going to be able to beat him on the feet? If he has to fight against a high-level wrestler, is he going to be able to get him down and get him into the positions he wants him to? Uh, if he's fighting against a high-level striker like we saw with Tamer, there are openings for him to win, but there were also some areas here where it got really worrisome for him. Almost got caught in an anaconda choke early on. Uh, took a huge overhand right that he was able to eat, uh, although that might have been a right hook. I don't remember if that was coming out of Southpaw Orthodox from Tamer. Um, but either way, with, with Hooper, there are definitely some causes for concern. If, if your thought process with Hooper is that he's going to be a future champion, uh, and, and like I mentioned, with the UFC, it is a bit concerning that they do like to push guys a little bit quickly. And if you're like a John Jones where they're pushing you, but you actually have the ability right off the bat to, to deal with the top guys, that's one thing. But I don't know that I see that with Chase Hooper right now. Though there are definitely some good things out of him, I, I don't see him being a guy who's contending for a title at featherweight anytime soon. Um, and then if you move him up a weight class, it's going to be even more problems for him because lightweight is just filled with black belts. Um, got a handful of pretty good wrestlers there as well. Uh, never mind if he ends up going to welterweight. And, you know, over time we'll see how the division evolves because some of the older guys I'm sure will, will kind of filter out and there'll be new guys coming in. But if the thought process with Hooper is that this is going to be a guy who's a future champion, I don't know that I see that. Uh, but he's definitely a, a guy who's a good fighter for his age. Uh, then we have Brandon Moreno versus Kai Kara France. Moreno impressed the hell out of me in this fight. Uh, this was a fight where I felt like it was going to determine, be determined where the fight went. If it stayed on the feet for the most part, the Kaikara front would have the huge advantage there. Um, but if it went to the ground, then that's where Moreno would have success. Moreno didn't even try to take this fight to the ground. Uh, just fought on the feet the entire time. Uh, definitely had a reach advantage against Kaikara front and was, was using it. But was also very quick. Was good about fight or was good about throwing. Um, Throwing a high volume, uh, oftentimes when he's throwing combinations, you'd at least get three or four punches, if not more. Uh, a lot of times he'd end it with that lead uh, high kick as well. So just great striking out of Moreno there. Look, looked really good. Him and Cejudo are very close, so I don't know that he's... I, I don't know what the plan would be for him. Uh, if Cejudo wants to move up to 35, which it seems as though the cut to 25 isn't the most fun thing for him, then 
Moreno could definitely be a future title contender. If not, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens if he keeps getting some wins. But it seems like for the flyweight title picture right now, it's Benavidez is in line for a title fight next. And what's either going to happen is Cejudo is going to come back down and he's going to fight against Cejudo or Davison Figueredo is going to fight against Benavidez and that'll be the, the flyweight title fight. But after a win like that, Brandon Moreno has got to be pretty close to a title fight himself. So really, really good job here on seizing an opportunity against a guy who's the number five in the division, getting a win. Um, beating him in, at his own game. Uh, so for Moreno, uh, definitely some big things to come for him. Then we had Jessica I versus Vivian Arujo. Not a wonderful fight, but I did enough to get a decision here by a score of 29-28 in all three judges' scorecards. And then on the first fight of the card, we had Punahele Soriano versus Oscar Pijota. Pijota, his previous loss was against Tadolfo Vieira. Um, but I, what Pijota had shown in that fight was, was decent defense in, in terms of keeping Vieira off of him and keeping Vieira from just cutting right through him like butter, like we're used to seeing Vera do against a lot of guys. Um, but on the feet, had some had some moments there against Vera where he looked pretty good. So the question here was against a guy like against a guy in Punahele Soriano, who's a decent college or a pretty good college wrestler, uh, and throws wild from the feet. The, the question was going to be for Pihota, can he get it to the ground and just use his big jujitsu advantage? And if not, uh, would he be able to be more tactical on the feet and land his shots? But unfortunately for Oscar Pijota, he really wasn't very defensively sound in this fight. So while he was finding a, a couple shots here and there, um, he, he was just in range of, of Soriano for, for much of the fight and was taking some heavy shots and eventually gets knocked out in this fight. There was there was a moment where he got dropped uh, and we sort of got like a bit of a jujitsu sequence. Looked as though he was getting pretty close on a Kimura attempt, but once the fight went back to the feet, just the lack of defensive fundamentals, whereas a, a guy like Jose Aldo was constantly keeping his hands up and when his head wasn't getting out of the way, at least the at least he was blocking the punches. In this case, um, Piotta's head was on the center line for much of the fight. Uh, he was getting caught with a lot of heavy shots, wasn't blocking them, and as a result, he gets knocked out pretty brutally, and is most likely going to be cut from the UFC as a result. Uh, so that covers it for the card. One more thing to talk about from UFC 245 before I go, though, or before I move on to UFC Korea, is that there were, there were some issues with the commentary, both from Joe Rogan and Daniel Cormier. With Cormier, much of the issue I had with him was with the fight against, uh, or with the Kamaru Usman versus Colby Covington fight, and they, again, that's the issue where Cormier was talking about how Usman was just badly outstriking Colby at a point in the fight when Colby was ahead on Kamaru. Uh, one of the interesting things is that, as I mentioned, Colby had sort of taken that third round off. If this fight would, in, in this case, it ends up being a three round or ends up being a five round title fight, had this fight happened sooner, and there was talking about how these guys were supposed to fight like four or five different times, uh, had they fought one of those other times and had it been a non-title fight and had this been a three-round fight. Now, obviously, strategies change and urgency changes, uh, but after three rounds, this fight was 29-28, 29-28, and 28-29 for Colby. So after three rounds, uh, Colby would have actually won- had won this fight um, had-, had it stopped at that point. Uh, so for this fight to be in the third round, uh, for it to be a fight where no takedowns were attempted, and for Daniel Cormier to just be stating matter-of-factly, that Colby Covington just couldn't strike with Kamaru Usman, that he needed to get the fight to a different to a different spot. It, it just didn't make any sense. Granted, there could be an argument made that both for Colby and for Kamaru, being the wrestlers that they are, had they tried to mix in some takedown attempts, they could have been more effective in their striking in terms of getting their opponents to be more concerned. Uh, a lot of Colby's striking is based around the, the threat of a takedown. A lot of those overhands are, are useful because if you're getting a guy to drop his hands to, to get his underhooks on a shot, then you're going to be able to throw... Throw that overhand and land it. Uh, he also does like the head kick where he dips down and then tries to throw the head kick over the top. 
So for Colby not to mix in the wrestling, you, you, you could make an argument that his striking could have been more effective had he mixed in the wrestling. You could probably make the same argument for Kamaru. Um, but for Daniel Cormier to be talking about how Colby is just having so much trouble in this fight, in, in a fight where a judge had him up 3-1, to one, in a fight where it was tied 2-2 two two and he was likely winning the fifth round, the, the way that Daniel made it sound, it made it sound as though Colby was just way behind, and that, that definitely wasn't the case. So it, it just felt like what he was saying just wasn't accurate at all. And with Cormier, there's sort of like a, a different issue there. And one of, the, one of the crazy things about MMA, too, is that if you have an ESPN Plus subscription, there's a series called Detail that was started by Kobe Bryant, and what he does is he gets superstar athletes from different sports to break down other superstar athletes. So Kobe will break down like a lot of the top NBA players. He has Peyton Manning break down a lot of top quarterbacks. And then for the MMA ones, they have Daniel Cormier break down a lot of the top UFC fighters. And one of the crazy things is uh, one of the crazy things there is that in, in a lot of these other sports, like with Peyton Manning breaking down a quarterback, like he, he can really get into like Nantas detail on like all the all the different things that the quarterback's doing. But with MMA being just such a broad sport where there's like so much to know about just jujitsu, there's so much to know about just striking, so much to know about just wrestling. When he does those episodes and it's not covering a wrestler, it's not covering like the wrestling aspects of a fighter. It, it's just one of those things that's like, dude, I'd, it, it just seems like there's like a, a a big hole there where maybe someone who who knew what they were looking at a little bit better could could do a better job. Uh, like with his um, breakdown on Israel Adesanya, I felt like there were definitely a lot of issues there where he was missing a lot of details. Uh, the wrestling details he's excellent with, but it, it felt like in this fight, I don't know if it was just a, an issue of him not recognizing what, what Colby was landing on the feet or if it was like just him not noticing what was going on in the striking or whether he was just in, inclined to, to hope for a win from Kamar Usman as a result was just talking about that. Uh, also, after the admission of Colby Covington talking about how, how his jaw was broken, uh, both him and Joe Rogan just kept on repeating broken jaw, broken jaw, broken jaw, broken jaw. Like hey, I was starting to like joke around with my friends when I was watching the fight. It's like, hey, if we're if we're gonna do shots every time they say broken jaw, we might be dead by the end of this by the end of this round. Um, so in, in a way that was annoying too. Yes, it's an important thing. Yes, it's worth mentioning, but I, I think it was a little bit overplayed on their end. Uh, for Joe Rogan, he was just one of my questions that I have with the UFC thing, and I don't know if there's any research to look either way. I have a, a bit of a hypothesis that if you're watching a fight and you can hear the commentary, it's more likely than not that you're probably a hardcore fan. You already know what's going on. Uh, so the idea there being, if you're a casual fan, chances are you're probably watching at a bar or you're probably watching at like a house party where there's a lot of loud noise and you can't necessarily hear the TV. Uh, whereas if you're like more of a hardcore fan, it's more likely that you would just be like sitting at home on your own, dishing out the money or like finding an illegal stream to, to watch the review and being able to hear the hear the commentary there so what, what rogan's popular for is, is oftentimes simplifying what's going on over the course of a fight to, to help people who don't really know what's going on and if that's what he felt he was doing during some of these fights then i, I guess in that way you can kind of give him a pass um but if you're more of a hardcore fan and you, you really know what's going on the, the stuff he was saying just didn't didn't really seem to match with reality particularly in the amanda nunez fight uh where it seemed as though every time there was a submission attempt uh, he was talking about how close it was and how tight it was when, in reality, you could like see that the submission was likely to be escaped, uh, whether it was the guillotine, whether it was the triangle attempt later on. Like, it just seemed like he was overhyping things. Um, I, I don't really hold it against him in the Chase Super fight, where it looked as though Tamer was about to get finished with a rear naked choke, and he said he was doomed and the fight was over. I, I thought the same thing, too, when I was watching it. It looked really tight. You could see Tamer's face was getting red. He was definitely having some trouble getting that blood to his brain, so... For, for him to, to talk the way he was on that one, I, I don't really hold that one against him, even though Tamer eventually got out of it. Um, but it, it definitely felt like 
Rogan was very quick to to make definitive statements where it was clear that nothing was definitive at all. Uh, and then also in that Nunes fight, it, it seemed like the timing, anytime he would remind us that Nunes is a black belt in jiu-jitsu, would be like right after she um, gets caught in a submission or just like struggles to pass through a position where it looked like there's a pretty easy pass to go from half guard into either mount, uh, either straight into mount or into side control. So in that way too, it's kind of frustrating, but with Rogan, all he does is pay-per-views right now. Um, we're only getting him a handful of times a year. It feels like so in some ways it's frustrating when you get, when you get these events from him, I think there was an event early on in the year or two where it seemed like he was having some trouble. Um, but it's tough for me because as long as I've watched the UFC, I've had Joe Rogan there. So I don't know that I'm like saying that I want him to stop doing it, but I, I would just like to see him be a little bit more accurate and do a little bit better than what he's been doing here. And then for Cormier, again, I'm not sure what was going on with him there as well. It, it was a little bit weird too with the pre-fight and the post-fight shows too, and that they had uh, Rashad Evans and Colby or, and uh, Chael Sonnen uh, on the pre and post-fight shows and that Chael Sonnen is friendly with Colby and, They've had a relationship for a while, and then Rashad obviously is like a mentor for Kamara Usman. So, anytime Rashad would be ta- would be breaking down the fight, he would be incredibly biased and definitely in, in the area of inaccurate uh, when talking about Kamara's ability relative to Colby's. And I don't know that Chael was any, anywhere near as bad um, talking about Colby versus Kamara, but you, with all the fighters that they have on staff that they could have had do that, I, I feel like it probably would have made a little bit more sense to to find some people who could probably be a little bit less biased than the two of them, but. Events over. I don't know. If there's any major harm in it, but it's a little bit frustrating as a fan to watch that and and to hear that. Uh, so the next topic to talk about is going to be the next UFC coming up, and that's going to be this week. This was supposed to be Brian Ortega versus the Korean Zombie. Brian Ortega had a serious injury that's going to take him out for at least three months. Uh, so Frankie Edgar, who at the time was supposed to fight Corey Sandhagen at 135, is now going to be moving back up to 145. This, of course, is prior to Volkanovski winning the title. Uh, therefore. If Volkanovski is able to defend his title, if, if they do that rematch against Holloway, there could be an argument that Edgar could be relatively close to a title fight at 45 if he decides to stay there. Don't think that's his plan, though. Uh, but just looking at that card, one of the surprising things to me is that Frankie Edgar is actually the underdog on in the betting odds to Chan Sung Jung. Jung's a pretty good all-around fighter. He's got very good boxing, um, pretty good grappling, pretty good at finding submissions, decent enough wrestling where he can keep the fight on the feet if he needs to. Um, but I, I still feel like this is going to be a fight where Edgar's going to be able to take him down. Uh, Edgar's a very difficult guy to submit. Uh, he decided in a fight against Charles Oliveira, for example, he was just going to take him down for all three rounds and was able to stay out of danger with him. I don't know that Chan Sung Jung is... I, I mean, you just need one, so maybe he does find something, but I, I just don't see Jung submitting Frankie Edgar. So to me, this is a fight where I can definitely see Frankie Edgar getting the win. And even if he's not able to control on the ground for all five rounds, just the threat of the takedown is going to do enough to, to open up the boxing and give Edgar a chance to land some heavy shots and, and do pretty well in this fight. So to me, I, I would pick Edgar, even though he's the underdog in this fight. Um, but Jung's a very good fighter, and unlike Duranami, who hasn't improved much over the course of her career, uh, Jung has definitely improved a lot over the course of his career, and that's including a, a two-year military stint as well. Uh, then we have Vulcan Ozdemir versus Alexander Rakic. Rakic is sort of like a dark horse uh, contender right now at light heavyweight. Ozdemir is a guy who has fight for the ta- fought for the title in the past, a guy who had the judges probably scored it properly would have a win over the current number one contender in Dominic Reyes, uh, but he's also had some bad losses too. Had a really bad loss to Anthony Smith, uh, really bad title loss to um, Daniel Cormier. 
Uh, so for him, this is sort of another gatekeeper fight for him, sort of like the Reyes fight was. Uh, with Rakic, I, I would say he's, he's more dangerous on the feet than Reyes was. Um, pretty decent wrestling as well. So to me, I, I see this fight probably being on the feet for the most part, and it's going to be a question of whether or not Ozdemir is going to be able to land heavy like he often does or whether Rakic is just going to be able to pick him apart from a distance and, and put him away. I would tend to believe that's going to be how this fight's going to go, that Rakic is going to be able to get the win here. Uh, and if he does... Really big opportunity for him, given that light heavyweight. There aren't a ton of guys who seem to be super deserving of title fights right now. There aren't a ton of guys who haven't fought against John Jones in the past. So if Rakic can get a dominant win here, uh, it would definitely put him in a position where he might be a couple wins away from a title fight himself. Uh, so another guy who, heading into 2020, uh, could be putting himself in the driver's seat for a title fight. Then we have the return of Duho Choi, uh, Korean Superboy. He will be fighting Charles Jordan. Uh, so, don't know a whole lot about Jordan, so it's tough for me to give a breakdown on this matchup, but I'm definitely excited to see Duho Troy return. Uh, very good striking. His grappling wasn't necessarily something that we had seen much of him in the past, but it really wasn't something that was needed. Uh, but he's a guy who doesn't look terribly physically imposing, but very accurate with his punches and is able to get a lot of knockouts as a result. Then we have Da Eun Jung versus Mike Rodriguez. I'm not terribly familiar with either of these guys. We have Jun Young Park versus Marc-Andre Berrio. And then Kyung Ho Kang versus Lee Pingyuan. So, as is often the case with the UFC, travel visas are expensive. If you're going to be fighting in the U.S., you're probably going to want a bunch of domestic fighters on the card. If you're fighting outside, you're probably not going to want to be paying travel visas or paying for travel expenses for American fighters. And it never hurts to build up international stars anyway or build up names internationally. So, a lot of the guys on this card are going to be guys who are from that that um, that area out in the world by Korea. Uh, then on the prelims, we have Surreal Gan returning. Uh, he'll be fighting Tanner Boser. I'm not terribly familiar with Boser, but Gan is a guy who is known as a, a training partner of Francis Ngannou, very good striking. His jiu-jitsu, from a technical standpoint, doesn't necessarily look all that impressive, but he's a very strong guy, and he's at least been able to make his opponents wilt and get some submission victories as well. I don't really see him as like a high-level grappler in, in, in any sense, but at least he's been effective in the fights that he's had. Uh, can't fault him for taking what's there, and that's what he's done. Uh, so for him, another opportunity to, to get a win and work his way up the heavyweight heavyweight, heavyweight ladder. Then we have Sungwoo Choi versus Suman Mokhtarian. We have Dongyeon Ma versus Omar Morales. Alexander Pantoja versus Matt Schnell, which is going to be a killer flyweight fight and really should not be buried that low on the card. If anything, that should probably be a co-main event, if not at the very least a main card fight. Um, but Pantoja is an excellent guy, excellent fighter, uh, excellent jiu-jitsu. Uh, his striking has been improving a lot. Had a really good fight with Davison Figueredo in his previous fight. Uh, Figueredo was able to get the win there, and as I mentioned before, is now likely in a position where he's not too far away from a title fight, but Pantoja looks pretty good as well. And then Matt Schnell also is coming off a couple of really nice wins uh, with some really good finishes as well. So this is a fight that, though it's at flyweight, has a good chance of not making it the full three rounds. Um, then we have Rowney Barcelos versus Syed Nurmagomedov. Uh, Miranda Granger versus Amanda Lemos. And Alateng A. Lee versus Ryan Benoit. Uh, so that covers it for that card. Uh, as I mentioned before, the Novi World Championships are still going on right now. Um, so I don't have the Blackwell results because the Blackwell results obviously aren't live just yet. Uh, the fights are still going on. So at Brown Belt, there were a couple guys who, or at least one guy who I can think of off the top of my head who got his Black Belt. They're both Black Belt oh. World Championships, so anything could happen. Let me just mute I that. Yeah, so I'm still watching the the black belt titles right, or the black belt worlds right now, as you can hear right there. Um, but at, at brown belt, uh, just starting from lower weights and then going up. So for males, at rooster weight, which is 
I'm trying to think of what the IBJJF weight is for that. It's probably like 125, somewhere in that area. Um, but we had Christopher Tran uh, from Crazy88. He ends up winning that weight class um, at Light Feather, which is 136 pounds. Winner in that weight class is Pedro Serrano out of Gracie Baja, who surprisingly is still a brown belt, although I'm sure he won't be around for much longer. He's been very successful uh, doing a lot of these finisher series tournaments, which are sort of um, along the lines of EBI. Uh, he, he's won a couple of them, won one at 145 pounds out in the Chicago area. I just won another one at 135 pounds. I was actually in that same bracket as him. Uh, didn't get to face him. I would have had to make the semifinals to face him, but I ended up uh, losing my first round match. And the guy who beat me ended up uh, facing him and then losing to him as well. But Pedro's excellent. Um, but he ended up winning that bracket as well. There were a, a bunch of black belts in that bracket, and he ended up winning it uh, as a brown belt. So for him... It seems like he's finally got his world title, now, at least the Nogi world title, so you'd figure at some point soon he'll probably be getting his black belt, but he's definitely going to be a guy who's going to be a problem for a long time. Uh, a really young guy, too, really talented as well. Then at featherweight, we had Joshua Cisneros from Kleber Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, he took first place there. At lightweight, we had Ellis Younger uh, taking first place. Middleweight, Alan Perez from 10th Planet. Uh, ended up beating Cody Steele, which is a, a bit of an upset there. Cody Steele's look fantastic. Him and the Tackett brothers have really been, make, been make, making a name for themselves. Um, so for Cody Steele, gets to the finals, but unfortunately loses to Alan Perez. So really big winner for 10th Planet in that. Um, but Cody Steele's he's a guy who's pretty close to, to earning his black belt as well. He's beaten some really good black belts too. I think he actually, I think he actually has a win over DJ Jackson, um, who if he isn't a former black belt world champion, is at least a medalist. So Steele's another really good up-and-comer as well, even though he didn't end up getting the win here. Then at medium heavy, Andrew Wiltsey from Padigo Submission Fighting. Uh, another fantastic guy. Um, sort of surprised he still has, has his brown belt, but uh, I guess he was being held out for an opportunity like this. But he gets his gets his moment, uh, moment to shine here, wins the, the medium heavy title. Uh, and then we have Pedro Marino getting a win over Roberto Jimenez, who ended up winning the open weight for brown belt. Um, but Marino wins the, this match here. Jimenez wins open weight at brown belt, gets promoted to black belt as a result. So for him... He had a fantastic run at Purple Belt where he was able to double gold, uh, both win- winning his weight and then the absolute in, in the gi. Moved on to Brown Belt this year. Wasn't as successful as he was at Purple Belt, which isn't a major shock, but still won a lot of big tournaments and then gets a world title here in Nogi and then gets promoted to Black Belt. It's really, really big for him. Then it's super heavy. Giancarlo Bodin- or Bodoni uh, from Alliance gets the win. And then at Ultra Heavy, Roosevelt Souza is the ultra-heavy world champion with Mason Fowler, who's surprisingly still a brown belt. Uh, he had fought at, I believe he fought Craig Jones, and was a really difficult matchup for Craig Jones as well. Which, wait a minute, I, I feel like that's going to be someone else. Maybe it isn't, but Mason Fowler um, takes third place there at ultra-heavy. Um, then for purple belt men, at Roosterweight, Frank Suspedis ends up getting the win there. Uh, Robin Bolin from Atos at Light Feather. Damian Gomez from Atos again. Atos doing really well here at Purple Belt. At Lightweight, Luke Beavis from Atos. And again, that was a closeout with Rafael Borges. Or I don't know if it was a closeout, but at least um, the other finalist was from Atos as well. Uh, then at Heavyweight, uh, Kyle Santos from Gracie Baja uh, was able to get his win as well, or was able to win that division as well. Uh, so a lot of good... A lot of good jujitsu that we've had so far this weekend. Uh, I think this list here that I'm working off of from Flow Grappling is also missing a couple of weight classes. Um, th- there's a guy from Valco out in the Chicago area who had won. Uh, if it wasn't heavyweight, I think it would have been like um, medium heavy. Um, so, so some of these are missing as well. 
but some some pretty good jujitsu all around, especially at brown belt. A lot, a lot of guys who are at a level right now where they can cause issues for some of the top guys in the world. Some of these guys even had fought at ADCC, uh, but definitely putting out some really good performances. Uh, so as I mentioned before, black belt is still going on right now. Once this is over, uh, and then I'll do a, just a separate video recapping the black belt results at Worlds. But this is probably won't be, won't happen until like around 8:30, e even later at night, uh, Central Time. So. That'll be later on. I'm not sure if I'll have the video on Sunday, which is that this will be over, or whether I'll, I'll, I'll do it later on in the week, but that's what I'm looking at right now. So next week we'll be recapping the UFC career card. Um, may also talk about some of the Blackboard results here. I'll, I'll decide whether or not I want to just leave, leave the video as is, or if I want to have some Blackboard recap in a podcast form, and if that's the case, then I'll talk about that as well. Um, but then I'm sure over the course of the week we'll, we'll have some news that comes out, uh, whether it's fallout from UFC 245, that's going to happen over time. Uh, or anything else uh, i'm sure there'll be plenty to talk about next week so can't wait for that and look forward to, to seeing how the week goes and and recapping it then